Welcome to episode 24 of the Swampflix podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. This is, of course, the podcast version of the movie review website Swampflix. We are coming to you from 7th Ward, New Orleans. It is officially Mardi Gras time. Woo! We've been to a couple parades. Yes. We're starting to get our supplies together for Fat Tuesday. Should we say what we're going out as on Fat Tuesday if people want to meet up with us? Uh, sure. We're This is the inaugural year of Crew Divine, our very own walking crew. It is not officially recognized in any form, shape, or way. <laughs> uh, but several other uh, Swamp Flicks alums. Virginia Ruth, who was on our um, Halloween episode where we talked about kids' witch movies from the 90s. And Brittany Lombus, who was like one of the founders of the site with, way back uh, when we first started two years ago. So all four of us are going to be dressed as divine in several different iterations on Fat Tuesday, just sort of roaming the quarter. So if you see a group of weirdos dressed like divine with a giant um, flamingo on a pole, it's very likely it's us, so come say hello. Yeah, we'll, we have some pretty pretty amazing throws, so I'm not going to tell you what they are. <laughs> Don't want to spoil the surprise, but... Yeah, we have a dinky little float that's just a shopping cart. <laughs> with like... It's a great float. <laughs> Um, but yeah, somehow between all of the getting ready for Mardi Gras stuff, we have managed to see a few movies since the last time we talked on this show. What have you seen that's been particularly interesting since the last time we talked? Oh, well, uh, Swamp Flicks got their very first screener, yeah. which was super exciting. A, f- a film studio contacted us and was like, hey, would you like to see this film before it hits theaters? And of course our answer is yes. And so they gave us uh, the screener for I Am Not Your Negro, uh, which was a 2016 documentary film. It is up for Best Documentary for the Oscars this year. Directed by um, Raoul Peck, adapted from a screenplay written by James Baldwin, sort of. It's like a manuscript he didn't finish before he died. Yeah, it wasn't quite a screenplay. It was the beginnings of a novel uh, book he was writing about the deaths of Meg Rivers. Uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And yeah, it was, he only wrote 50 pages before he passed away. And so this film uses that manuscript and his ideas about what it means to be a, a Negro in America and in American media and why racism exists in the first place and why these three men died and what we can learn from their deaths. That kind of became this jumping off point for this documentary that very much feels relevant. They intercut, obviously, because it's an unfinished book. We don't know exactly what he was going to say. We don't have enough archival footage necessarily just of those three men to keep it interesting, you know, and and explore the topics that uh, James Baldwin wanted to explore. So it's also intercut with modern day footage of uh, the protest movements from Black Lives Matters, Ferguson, so on and so forth. So the whole thing feels exceptionally relevant. Yeah, and it really, like, becomes just about as much of, like, what James Baldwin's mind thinks like as anything else. And the reason they use that antiquated term Negro is because it has a lot of footage of him on television appearances in the 60s and uh, doing these kind of college lectures uh, where he's not even talking about race relations in any kind of like protest fashion. It's more like an underlying philosophy of like why this country like has a race problem and like how that seeps into like every corner of our pop culture and our critical thinking. Uh, And the movie relies a lot more on criticism of film than I expected when we first popped it in. It's it's got like a lot of footage of movies from the 30s through the 50s of just showing what black representation looks like on screen and how that shapes the way that people think about race in an American context. 
Uh, there's even a um, clip from the 1930 versions of Imitation of Life, which we'll be talking about the remake of that later in this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it really um, surprised me how much of it was about pop culture criticism and just philosophy. And uh, I really want to start reading. I know he has like whole books on just his thoughts on film culture. Yeah. Uh, he, such an interesting person. And it's really... Yeah, this really was more of an a extended essay yeah. uh, on James Baldwin and what his philosophy was and and you know some of the core tenets of his work like what is race even like why did we invent it why did america invent race yeah so you have like three documentaries up for best documentary feature at the oscars you have three major ones that are about race ava duvernay's 13th which is Mm -hmm. about like prison um it's about the 13th amendment that says that no human can ever be uh subject to slavery unless they have been convicted of a crime and incarcerated uh, and how that system essentially allowed America to just reinstitutionalize slavery. And then there's the O.J. Made America documentary, which is 10 hours long. And that's about like how that story that fascinated so many people in the 90s like was all about race and how that's kind of been forgotten in the, in the years since. But it's interesting that this one would be in contention with those two because I feel like those two movies have like a solid point where this uh, movie, I'm Not Your Negro, is more of like a provocation of thought where it's just asking you to think about why things are the way they are and like how sickening it is without any kind of answers or like even a uh, thesis statement. It's just like a, this is what's wrong and there's no fix to the problem. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I think it's a very interesting movie. It it, um, goes in some really like loose collage kind of tangents that I really didn't expect when we started watching it. It does feel more like an art house film than a straightforward documentary. I mean, its use of imagery is very striking. Its use of sound is very striking uh, in a way that you usually wouldn't expect from a documentary that's usually a fairly straightforward method of storytelling. And even though um, it premiered in 2016 at like festivals and stuff, it's now playing in theaters. I think it's like officially a 2017 release. Um, according to like the box office, it's a 2016 sites. Oscar film, though. Yeah. So to me, it's a 2016 film. Oh no, I wasn't arguing about that. I'm just saying like you could go watch this in the theater now. Oh yeah, it's absolutely, making the rounds, yeah. um, and I highly recommend going to like squirm in public under <laughs> these like really uncomfortable philosophy provocations. What what else have we seen since last time? Uh, well, February is a great month for horror movies, so we got to go see M Night Shyamalan's newest film, Split. In theaters, it uh, stars James McAvoy in one of his great uh, physically ugly roles. I, I divide his career into two parts. There's the ones where there's hot James McAvoy, like Atonement. And there's like ugly, terrifying James McAvoy, like Mr. Tumnus in Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> and Xavier uh, from X-Men. And now this character in Split. Yeah, I have to say this is probably my favorite M. Night Shyamalan movie I've ever seen. I haven't watched a lot of his early stuff since it came out, and I missed a lot of those movies. This one really surprised me. I thought it was way better than The Visit. There's no traditional twist in the way that you would expect from him. Um, there are some sort of last-minute left turns, but they all feel earned and like part of the story. It's not like he's like pulling a trick on you. Uh, and I feel like the movie follows through on a lot of its themes in a way that his movies usually don't. Like, uh, I don't feel the um, gimmickry in the narrative the way I do with his films sometimes. No, no. Uh, I feel like he didn't come up with the gimmick first and then wrote a film around it, which I felt like was probably true for some of his other films. <coughs> Signs. <coughs> um, or The Happening. Or <laughs> anything else. Not that I can say I've really seen a lot of his films. I've, you know, I've seen Split. I've seen uh, Sixth Sense. I've seen Signs. Uh, yeah. I actually haven't seen The Happening 
or The Village, which I hear is great. Yeah, it would but... be interesting to go back and watch some of those now. Unbreakable, I haven't seen that either, so. This this kind of cued me in on him as like a stylist. Like, I've never thought of him as being somebody with this really slick, beautiful way of making films. Like, I always think of them as like trashy genre works, which they are, but Split is very like well-crafted visually. And of course, like you said, James McAvoy is like something to behold in this film. He plays at least seven different personalities on screen because he has a dissociative identity disorder in the film and then there's Anya Taylor-Joy from The Witch uh, is very good in this film as well Um, and it's just like really fun to watch two great actors in this really like beautifully shot movie that's aiming for such a trashy genre film purpose. It is so trashy. (laughs) It's lurid in its details. It is not particularly factual depictions of mental illness or trauma but hey, it's fun. Yeah. I've seen a few um, 2017 movies in the past two months, and this is the only one I'm like thinking might be sticking around, uh, kind of like 10 Cloverfield Lane or The Witch uh, later in the year when people are looking for great performances or like great genre films um, to praise. Like This actually has some like staying power. I was yeah, really impressed is, by this it. This is the first film I believe I've seen of 2017. Um, I can't think of anything else that I, I've seen that officially came out this year. Uh, so far for me, yeah, it's the best film I've seen this year. <laughs> <laughs> I also watched uh, Beware the Slender Man, which was a documentary that premiered on HBO this year. Kind of splitting the difference between I'm Not Your Negro and Split. It's like a uh, horror documentary um, about a real life uh, uncomfortable incident where these uh, two girls stabbed a fe- fellow 12-year-old in the woods because of an internet meme. But I, I would say as a documentary, Beware the Slender Man did not work uh, in any kind of thought-provoking way, the way that I'm Not Your Negro does. It, it tries to do all these like philosophical things about what is the internet and the evolution of a meme and all these like far-reaching ideas like that. But it doesn't um, command those thoughts very well. But as like a horror film that uses those real life ideas to like scare you and put you at unease, it's really fun, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, if you're looking for um, movies to add to your 52 films by women pledge, um, that was a good one that I've seen uh, from like recent releases. And I also watched this uh, one from last year called Sick House for the same purpose. This is a movie that was filmed entirely on iPhones and released over three days on the app Snapchat. Um, (laughs) So it's got all these like 10 second clips of these girls going into the woods um, to investigate a haunted house. It turns into um, exactly just Blair Witch on Snapchat. It's like the whole premise of the film. Um, It's got the exact same plot. It just happens to have all these like short bursts of videos with all the Snapchat editing tools. So it's got like... um, sort of MS Paint level writing on the screen and emojis and just like random text. I love this kind of use of throwaway internet imagery in my horror trash. Like I was really into Nerve last year, Unfriended, Hashtag Horror we've talked about on the show a few times. I don't think Steakhouse is as good as any of those films, but if you're interested in using new like throwaway internet technology for a genre film. I think it's got a lot of interesting ideas, and I had a lot more fun with it than I expected. And those were like two of my more interesting discoveries from the last month. That's, that's a pretty good wrap-up of what we've seen. been in a theater a few times, but mostly have been focusing on Mardi Gras stuff the past couple weeks. Today on the episode, we are going to be looking at a David Lynch film that I've never seen before, 
And we're also going to be talking about Douglas Sirk's string of Technicolor melodramas from the 1950s. And all that's coming up to you right now. time for our movie of the minute segment this is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other uh for this segment cc made me watch a movie from the early 80s what did we watch we watched the elephant man directed by david lynch starring the recently deceased john hurt and also a young anthony hopkins a young and slightly creepy sexy (laughs) anthony hopkins Definitely sexier than he was in Magic, the movie with the uh, ventriloquist doll that James and I watched for the previous episode. And we actually end up watching this the night that it was announced that John Hurt had passed. Uh, I think it was the night after. Was... I, I don't think it was immediately. We're big procrastinators in this household. <laughs> but it was really fresh off of hearing that he had mm-hmm. gone. Definitely. That is part of what prompted it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this film was directed by david lynch after he did Eraserhead, uh you can see a lot of that visual imagery in the film um this is one of john hurt's like big breakout roles he had not yet done alien correct um i don't think so yeah it was before alien i i knew of him from earlier roles solely through uh his work in the naked civil servant playing quentin crisp very different role here yeah so what did, what did you think about the contrast it's kind of weird to say this because we did kind of watch it to commemorate him Mm -hmm. but i feel like almost anyone could have played the role we should say that this is a historical film about john merrick who his real name according to wikipedia is actually joseph merrick (laughs) but everybody called him john on accident i guess and he never corrected them or maybe he didn't even know his real name but he was a englishman uh born in the late 1800s during the victorian era who had some really severe physical disfigurements he erroneously believed that he looked the way he did because his mother was startled by an elephant at the circus, and that is what he truly believed his whole life. That is absolutely not true. His mother probably never saw an elephant while she was pregnant, but he did have these large, fleshy growths all over his head and body. They And it wasn't just flesh, it was also bone. Uh, his skeleton is very interesting. It's, it's never been on public display, but there are photographs of it, and you can look it up on the internet. Despite rumors that Michael Jackson bought the elephant man's bones, that's not He did not, not absolutely not. No. <laughs> and his, his skeleton was one of the few things saved from the hospital where he his bones currently reside uh, during the bombings of World War II. Or maybe actually, maybe his bones didn't survive and the photographs are all we have. I actually can't remember now. Uh, I'm not sure. Might have been all of his other stuff that he no, actually, I, from what I understand, um, the movie makeup for this was molded after like actual forms of his body. Okay, yeah. So, so maybe some of the things, maybe it's all of his stuff, because he actually had a lot of stuff. He accumulated a lot of stuff, as you can see in the movie. But yeah, really interesting life. He lived a really awful life like in the poorhouse, and then he opted to sell himself into the circus, uh, which is kind of glossed over in the movie, in order to make a better life for himself. And then later, he kind of became this pet and darling of this one particular hospital, and they kind of used him as a way of like attracting funding, and he ended up becoming this bit of a bon vivant, and the Victorian society kind of was like fascinated by him, so he would get to go to the theater, and people wrote him letters, and he was this terrific pen pal. Yeah, that's the main conflict of the film, really, is Anthony Hopkins trying to decide if he is exploiting Merrick the same way that the circus has, and if the way the hospital sort of displays him for all these like society people and theater types is just as bad as him being locked in a cage and gawked at for like uh, pennies at the circus. 
Which, obviously, he's not, like, physically beating him. He's, like, doing his best to make a comfortable life for him. But I could definitely see how there's, like, a level of exploitation there that would cause him to, like, worry about his own personal relationship with Merrick, which turned into, like, more of a genuine friendship by the time that uh, Merrick passed. Yeah, at least in the movie. The Wikipedia did note that he never fully trusted the Doctor and so, like, would, like, purposely lie or withhold information about his life just to, like, I don't know, fuck with him. Like, the doctor was always asking him about his mom, and he would never tell the doctor anything. And then it turns out he had, like, siblings and, like, a whole family, like, living not that far away that were alive at the time that he could have gone to talk to, but he, like, refused to tell the doctor about them, so. Yeah, and he's a very private person in the movie, too. He hides the fact that he can read at first, just because people, I guess, are less scared of him when they think that he's not intelligent. Uh, and he's he fears for his own life because he, he gets beaten Pretty just regularly. for looking deformed. And you said to me that it's not, like, a former giantess or anything it's like an undiagnosed yeah i mean they've thrown different diagnoses around proteus syndrome is something that a lot of people have talked about uh which is this rather mysterious uh affliction that can cause something similar to what we see with john merrick although i've never seen a case of proteus syndrome that looks quite as extreme as his there's also other afflictions that people have and it's like tree root syndrome or something like that it's pretty much like an extreme form of warts like papilloma virus and usually that happens like a young person will fall and cut their knee open on a rock. And then the next thing they know, everywhere from that cut down has been like consumed by these huge keratin-like structures that like completely consume their like natural body. And yeah, he his was not that. So they every once in a while come out with like a new finding. But the DNA they do have of his was inconclusive because they checked his teeth. They tried to get some DNA from his teeth and they couldn't pull anything. So unfortunately, unless we get better at extracting DNA from very old bones and teeth, or his particular bones and teeth, we'll never really get too many answers. I yeah. don't know if he has any like marrow for people to, to scrape out and test. So still a medical mystery. Yeah, so obviously, like, the subject is fascinating. Like, the, John Merrick's story, he's, like, a really interesting person. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, I feel like he, there's multiple books written about him. And I, I don't mean to disparage John Hurt's performance as Merrick. I just, he's buried under so much makeup that it's hard to, like, see... Like, when you watch an actor, like, they express so much with their, like, face. Uh, I feel like he expressed a lot with his eyes, though. That's true. But yeah, I, I guess I'm just kind of like going to your question, what do I think of John Hurt's performance? And it's just like, that's really not the first thing that jumps out to me in this movie, which is interesting because that's why we watched it. Like the first things that pop out to me is like, I kind of avoided this movie because I assumed it was like Workman Lynch. Like this is right after Eraserhead and it's like probably his biggest movie at the time. And I thought this is David Lynch just sort of accepting someone else's script and sort of putting in like an easy Hollywood uh, movie. And I thought it was going to be more like generic and just like a step a down. A biopic? <laughs> yeah. But I was completely blown away by what he did. It's it's not a biopic. It's not a no. historical document. It's something much stranger. Yeah, there is a good bit of uh, impressionism in this film. John Merrick has these reoccurring dreams, both of his mother being startled and trampled by an elephant, and also, even though they never explicitly mentioned that John Merrick had lived in a, a workhouse uh, in England, which were awful, terrible places, some of the dream imagery involves 
these large factories with the steam and the workers, and it, it is pulled directly from the actual biographical fact that he had at one time been trapped in a poorhouse. Yeah, it's like this really gritty version of uh, that Madonna Express Yourself video. There's like all exactly, these exactly, like... <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it's like. That's <laughs> all these like uh, shirtless men working these like mysterious machines. We're not even sure what they're cranking. Yeah, and a lot of Dutch angles, so you know it's a dream. A lot of smoke and steam. Oh yeah, endless shots of like steam stacks. Um, yeah. And then, like you said, there's that dream-like imagery of his mother being trampled by an elephant, which is an image that obviously torments him throughout the film. Um, but yeah, there's like an expressionistic, uh, dream-like quality that you would expect from Lynch. But I have a l- I have very little patience for when he goes so off the rails with like the art film pretension. So something like Eraserhead isn't necessarily my favorite thing from the director. I really like when that kind of expressionism is trapped in this like more digestible film like the, the last movie you and i watched from david lynch was inland empire and we both hated it Ugh. i mean i wouldn't really say i watched it i was in the same <laughs> room as it I, I i don't understand people's love of it uh i mean by all means give that movie some love i'm certainly never going to do it i just i just didn't get it but that's like this unwieldy three-hour mess that's like tries to reach beyond like what cinema is and combines all these like philosoph- I just don't it's care ugly, about it mostly yeah it, it is really a hideous film uh, this on the other hand uses some of those same disorienting uh, tools that Lynch does so well um, but makes it digestible and this like yeah so he takes these art school flourishes and he adds them to a narrative structure which is something I think that me and Brandon particularly gravitate towards 20th century women use something similar I mean obviously not visually similar in any way but something where you take the sort of film styles that you would see in you know maybe a museum piece uh, or a moving art exhibit or an art film and move use those for a narrative purpose yeah the, the oh. climax of this film isn't even anything like there's all these storylines about people who want to beat and steal Merrick and put him back in the circus. Uh, there's this, like, night porter that keeps sneaking in to, like, have all these drunks come gawk at him at night while he's li- living at the hospital. So you would think that the climax of the film would be him, like, winning over his abusers in some way. But instead it's this really lovely trip to the theater where he watches this performance that's very much like Guy Madden's experimental... It uh, looks just like a Guy Madden. It, we, we had also recently seen... Uh, we watched a series of ballet horror films with our co-contributor, Ali Hobbs. And for one of the bi- uh, ballet horror films, we watched the Guy Madden Dracula film. Dracula, Pages from a Virgin's Diary. Exactly. Yeah. And this performance of the British stage, West End stage, like at its height while they sat in Princess Catherine... I believe it. Yeah, Princess Catherine's uh, opera box looked like that (laughs) like very similar yeah it's like a weird layered collage of all these different kinds of theater yeah Um, so yeah you saw some pantomime you saw the uh the opera uh effect where stage design where you have like waves that are like card that are cutouts that are moving back and forth with like you know people dressed as fish jumping in between you saw a little bit of ballet yeah but i really i really like that impressionistic conclusion of the story it it makes it so much more than just like uh regular like you said biopic movie structure it's not him getting a victory over the bullies it's like him being celebrated and taking delight in like the finer things that like normal human beings would be able to do turns Uh, out despite his terrible life john merrick was a big uh fop a big dandy he just really wanted like a fancy pocket watch and a nice top hat and to go to the theater 
and you know to like dick around in his room with his toys like and it's it's really nice to see lynch reach for like genuine emotion when usually it's like kind of a detached like intellectual experience that that idea of him wanting to like live this foppish life is like really affecting and very tragic yeah it's so tragic like all he wanted to do was be a fancy boy and you know he had like a hat size it was something like 50 diameters like 50 i think it was like yeah 50 50 inches in diameter or something ridiculous like an inhuman hat size he would never go into public unnoticed and and the reason he dies is because he just wants to sleep with his head on a pillow like a person who doesn't suffer from a deformity yeah uh and he just like asphyxiates because he can't breathe that way but yeah i really like that sort of tragic aspect of the film i I think it's really affecting and uh my other like major love for it is the way that it's shot in black and white in a very universal monster um tradition Mm -hmm. it looks a lot like todd browning's work in freaks and dracula but it's never as exploitative as like look at this monster the way that those films would be I guess he might have been aiming for like a Frankenstein feel where like the monster is sort of this like tragic figure that people don't want to take the time to understand. But I think it works really well with the material. Yeah, and Freaks was the same way. I mean, there are scenes that are very reminiscent of Freaks. Like you can tell that David Lynch definitely saw that film. Well, they're both circus cinema. Yeah, and there's a scene where he, after he does finally get pulled back into the circus, the circus freaks take it upon themselves to get him back to England. So they like charter him a ship and like sneak him out and they like break break him out of his like prison cell which very much reminds me of the climax of the movie Freaks but yeah it was just strange to me to go into this film looking for performances from Hopkins and, and Hurt who were very good here but I just left like a bigger David Lynch fan I, I don't know if that's yeah I feel like this is definitely the director's movie I really like John Hurt's performance because he had to do a lot with his voice it's very hard to understand John Merrick he had a very slurred uh, speech because of the way his skull was malformed and so like trying to not only get that sound right but to also bring in this almost naive and childlike quality to this person who is not naive or childlike necessarily but who want to like come off that way to people for, to protect themselves I thought it was a very good performance yeah but it is ultimately a director's film and uh, Hurt hated working in this movie it, it took him eight hours a day to put on the makeup and then <laughs> two hours a day to take it off so they would have to like basically take a day off. Like they can only film every other day because of how grueling the makeup experience was. Uh, he's quoted as telling his wife, uh, "They finally found a way to make me hate acting," which is, uh, <laughs> which I mean, obviously the performance is well remembered. And uh, when, when he passed, a lot of headlines were like, "Elephant Man actor John Hurt passes." Yeah, they didn't say like guy from the chestburster scene of Alien. <laughs> but yeah, which, it's, obviously that's more iconic. Yeah, it's, like, uh, really funny that he hated doing it, but it ended up, like, sort of building his legacy. I mean, I feel like some actors of a certain era do love kind of, like, those stories. Like, they say how much they hate it, but, like, they always kind of brag. Like, well, you know, it was 24 hours to put the makeup on and, like, 16 (laughs) hours to take it off. And, you know, I had to sleep in it. And, you know, I would sleep in the chair. I would get to the chair for them to start doing it at three in the morning. Like, I feel like it's one of those situations where they can kind of brag about how awful it was. And it, and it helps that they got a lot of accolades for the makeup effects. This movie, because it is more digestible, Lynch, uh, was nominated for eight Academy Awards. Um, it Which... won zero of them, but that's pretty impressive that David Lynch film got the Academy's attention that way. Especially for such, like, a, a visually gruesome film. Like... For a film that, like, people wouldn't want to watch. I feel like the Academy, they're pretty boring people nowadays. Can't imagine what they were like 30 years ago. 
That that I'm not an animal, I'm a human being line is still pretty iconic, I think. Most people Absolutely. recognize that. Yeah. But uh so they they were nominated for eight awards and people were outraged that one of those awards weren't for the makeup effects specifically, uh, because the Academy did not have that category <laughs> at the time. So because of this movie and that sort of outrage that it wasn't being nominated for that, uh, they instilled the award for the next year and American Werewolf in London won the fir- very first award for best makeup effects. Which rightfully so, although I feel like anyone who like reads that tidbit like can now like think to themselves, technically Elephant Man got the first award <laughs> for it. Like, yeah, but it's it's pretty cool that Dave, David Lynch's movie got Rick Baker an Oscar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I, is... I wonder I, I wonder if he ever sent him a thank you card. He really should send poor Ricky Baker. You know, uh, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> We're never going to be able to not call him Ricky Baker from now on, are nope. we? That's Taika no. Waititi's fault. No. Um, Thank you, Taika. But yeah, I, I really just am impressed with this movie. I think it's like my perfect mix of like artiness and sort of genre. I don't want to call it genre trash because it's not a trash yeah. movie. It's very classy. It's a very classy biopic. They're British. <laughs> About a very classy man. Yeah. But uh, I, I do think it, it, it has a knowledge of like old monster movies and applies that to like a really higher purpose. And yeah. I, he uses all of his influences really well in this. I mean, the only Lynch movie I can name off the top of my head that I enjoy better than this is uh, Blue Velvet. Yeah. This is very Same. high up for me. Yeah. The only other thing I'd, I'd want to mention that I thought was interesting when I was like reading on Wikipedia was that this was a Mel, Mel Brooks production. Huh. Brooks Films produced both this movie and The Fly, which is weird as well. And he had his name removed from the producer credit just so people didn't treat it like a comedy. <laughs> oh, poor Mel Brooks. He wanted to do something arty and he's like, no, the public, they won't get it. And you can kind of hear that. Uh, I think some people treat that I'm I'm not an animal, I'm a human being line as a funny line. Which, I'm sure there was an SNL sketch afterwards. Which is like, really fucked up, because it's a tragic... It's such tragic line. It's, it's not fun. It's, like, really painful. Even though, even though, like, I hadn't actually, like, watched this movie the whole way through before suggesting it to Brandon for us to watch, I, I do have a lot of experience with this movie, because my mother, bless her heart, <laughs> likes to yell, I am not an animal! At really inappropriate times. That is that is actually like my first introduction to this film. So I wouldn't watch it for years as a kid. She was always trying to get me to watch it. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> the funny thing about that line is people leave out the weirdest part where he says, I'm not an elephant. Yeah. Which, what a strange thing to look at this man and assume that he's an elephant. He's, yeah, like, what was wrong with the Victorians? Why would they be like, yeah, elephant? Mm-hmm. I mean, his skin was grayish. Which you cannot tell in a black and white film. But the skin of his legs... And backwards, particularly rough looking, that did take on a grayish color. That is information so, I was missing for sure. Yeah, so. But he does not have a trunk. I feel like that is a thing that elephants usually have. I mean, considering, a trunk. considering the kind of circuses he was working for, I could see someone like attaching a trunk or some ears to his head yeah. to make him look more elephantish. I mean, sure, there's all kinds of. Uh, he was already so unique. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I, don't, I don't think they needed that. But like the half man, half woman, who is actually almost always. Interestingly enough, just a rather skinny, effete-looking guy who will tan and work out on one side of his body and leave the other side of his body pale and, you know, scrawny so that he can do half-drag. What a fun, the, what a fun yeah. science experiment. Yeah. <laughs> but then, like, poor guy, what do you, what do you do... What do you do when you're not uh, working for the circus? Because half of your body is, like, really buff. <laughs> you just look weird. 
Well, from a historical aspect, I, I kind of wish that John Merrick had like some writings or something that could read, like some kind of published books. He, he, I think only one of his letters uh, has survived. I don't think any of his other letters did. Is that from the intense bombing of Europe? <laughs> yeah, I think it might have had to do something with the intense bombing of London at one point. Yeah. So, bummer. Because, uh, yeah, I think also his hat got lost. Maybe his hat's on display somewhere, oh, right. but yeah. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to see his gigantically sized top hat? Brandon suggested that maybe he just wear it on only one of his knobs on his head. <laughs> yeah, just get a regular hat and kind of jaunt it on one of the regular knobs. He did not want that. He no. wanted to look like a fancy boy. Well, I, I thought he was very fancy. He was super fancy. Yeah, and I, re- I really like this movie. I want to watch it again um, soon, actually, just because I feel like there's a lot to absorb. But I could see like owning a nice like Criterion Blu-ray of yeah, Elephant Man. I it's would so- something yeah. I'd watch once a year for sure. Agreed. She's such a gossip. It'll be all over town by tomorrow, I'm afraid. I hate to have the children learn about us before I tell them. Then you better tell them. But it should be so simple. Two people who are in love with each other want to be married. Why is it so difficult all of a sudden? It isn't. If you're not afraid. That's what Mick learned from you, isn't it? No. You can't learn that from anybody. Mick discovered for himself that he had to make his own decisions, that he had to be a man. And you want me to be a man? Only in that one way. And now it's time for our feature conversation. This week we're going to be talking about a string of American films made by German-born director Douglas Sirk. Over the course of just a few years, um, Cirque made these highly influential works that have been echoed in such far-reaching things as like John Waters' Polyester, Ali Fear Eats the Soul from Fassbender, also the original Vincent Price version of The Fly. Oh yeah, and also Far From Heaven from Todd Haynes is like a direct pastiche of uh, a couple of his movies from this era. Um, and although I've, I've seen a lot of stuff that's been influenced by him before, I've never actually watched his films. So we, we did a quick like crash course in Douglas Sirk melodramas. They're known for heightened romance fantasy. They're women's films. That's the funny thing, is that they've been sort of um, reconsidered as these high works of art in the years since they were released. But uh, I'm going to read this section from Wikipedia. This is the segment titled Contemporary Reception. Cirque's melodramas of the 1950s, while highly commercially successful, were generally very poorly received by reviewers. His films were considered unimportant because they revolve around female and domestic issues, banal because of their focus on larger-than-life feelings and unrealistic because of their conspicuous style. What doesn't sound awesome about that? (laughs) Just like really heightened emotional drama and really just unreal beautifully shot just like gorgeous colors like the kinds you'd see in something like the red shoes yeah just pure cinema and just how like even when even when he's shooting nature it just doesn't look like nature it it looks like so beautifully manicured (laughs) nothing in these movies doesn't look like a film like you never get lost in the idea that you're not watching like a filmed play no it's set on a soundstage no matter what even when they're outside 
So Cirque has made a very large number of movies that we're just not going to get around to. Like he's got at least 50 films to his name. And when I was looking at his uh, filmography through Wikipedia, they centered mostly on these American films that he made in the 50s. Uh, he was originally a German director, but he fled Germany right before World War II because he had a Jewish wife. And he made a couple anti-Nazi films when he first moved over here. But he's known mostly for these romantic films that he made for Universal International Pictures. And according to Wikipedia, there were only six that were important. And I started watching the six that they recommended, and it was just, like, false. Like, uh, one of the first ones I watched was called Tarnished Angels. Um, it was shot in black and white, so already it's not a Technicolor melodrama. They literally called them his six great Technicolor films. Yeah, and then the other ones, I had to like kind of weed through them. He actually made 20 pictures for Universal. Some of them were in black and white like Tarnished Angels. Some of them were war movies. Uh, he had some comedies, historical epics. There were a couple westerns thrown in there. So it was just kind of weird. Um, it was like one of those situations where you can't just trust Wikipedia for your research because it like really threw me off. Um, I didn't have a problem watching Tarnished Angels. It was a really great Rock Hudson picture set in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. So there were these like beautiful, stark black and white footage of floats going down Canal Street that was just really interesting from a historical standpoint. And it was also like a William Faulkner adaptation, these like really tawdry themes of like alcoholism and like uh, pregnancy outside of marriage, like stuff that you usually don't see in Faulkner works because they're usually set in that fictional town. This was like in New Orleans in contemporary instead of in the, in the past of the South, which was uh, just an interesting viewing experience but I, I did kind of weed out all those extra genres from here we're just going to talk about the five technicolor melodramas that he made in the 50s for universal international um the first one i watched by myself it's called magnificent obsession from 1954 it stars rock hudson and jane wyman basically rock hudson is a billionaire playboy who doesn't give a shit about anything he begins the film wrecking a speedboat uh, just kind of showing off for this date he's on, this girl he doesn't even really care about, and he almost dies in an accident. And they bring him back to life using uh, this like medical machine that the town doesn't really have access to. They just have like this one machine they have to haul around. And because they save his life, a very important doctor to the town dies. So you have this small community who hates his character now because he's like this frivolous, uh, selfish man who gets to live while this other guy who's touched a lot of people doesn't get to continue to do his good work on Earth. And the more he looks into it, because he's fascinated with the dead doctor's widow, who is um, Jane Wyman, he discovers that this guy was in this sort of weird, unspoken cult where he did good deeds for people. Like, he would, like shell out thousands of dollars to to bail people out of trouble and he like ran this hospital like pretty much for zero profit under the stipulation that no one would mention that he did a good thing for them and <laughs> they play this idea that him doing these good things is like the subversive act that <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's kept under wraps because it's a philosophy that if you say it out loud it's not as good for your soul. Mm. And if you do good things for other people, good things will happen to you. The, the funny thing about that is that it's pretty much just Christianity. And there's really no reason to keep it quiet. They, they say like, oh, the first guy who did this, he only lived to the age of 33. Uh. Uh. <laughs> so it, I really wanted to enjoy this movie for Rock Hudson. Um, 
sort of seducing Jane Wyman because um, she's like older than him, and it's kind of weird to like go after the widow of a man who you had some hand in him dying. Yeah. Uh, the movie gets really weird once she goes blind and he pretends what? to be somebody else. Uh, she goes blind because of another thing he fucks up because he's like doing the the weird Christian cult thing wrong at first. He's like selfishly trying to do these good deeds instead of like actually doing them for their own sake. Basically, this movie's bullshit. It's like a weird romantic version of Pay It Forward. Um, oh, it sounds like a romantic lifetime movie. <laughs> and I didn't see the greatest transfer of it, so a lot of the like beautiful colors were kind of missing. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some beautiful images in the first scene where he's like ra- racing the speedboat, and his date's like on a and it's like really beautiful one piece yellow swimming suit. Um, and it's kind of like idyllic 1950s look to it. But after that, I got really bored. So the movie that came out um, a year after that in 1955 also starred Rock Hudson and Jane Wyman, and that was All That Heaven Allows. This was the one that Todd Haynes pulled a lot of influence for Far From Heaven, and pretty much anybody thinking about Douglas Sirk melodramas, I feel like this is the one that would come up the most often. It's the most iconic. Um, What did you think about this film? Uh, well, I only saw three of the Douglas Sirk films, uh, this one and two others that we'll talk about later. And I would say that, you know, based on my limited knowledge of Douglas Sirk, this is definitely his most iconic film. It was my favorite of his three films. Uh, I think it was the best made and it was the most original story really out of them. In this film, a wealthy upper class wasp widow begins a relationship with her much, much younger gardener, except he's eight years younger than her. Uh, <laughs> she's playing a woman in her 60s, but she's only actually 38. And Rock Hudson in real life is, was 30 at the time. And so there's this great question of what should women do with their lives after their husbands die? You know, there's there's this idea that her life is over. Um, so to seek out romance is kind of tawdry of her, especially to seek romance outside of her social cast. It's really beautifully shot. It asks kind of these big questions. It has a lot of like beautiful romance scenes. It's just really fun. You know, I loved it. Out of the five I watched, I would say this is the one that's like a perfect work. Like this is just a beautiful art piece. The color and the lighting in this film is pretty much giallo. It's got these really harsh, deep, cold blues clashing with these really warm, like, yellow lights in the background. The nature shots are absolutely fucking ridiculous. Uh, because he's a landscaper, he's he's kind of like a... Um... A Walden type. <laughs> yeah, he, he lives he lives in nature and for nature. The, the, I guess the word I was looking for was arborist, because he, like, grows all these trees just for his own pleasure as well, for, like, commercial pleasures. He's got all these, like, um, greenhouses and stuff by his own house. And that's a that's supposed to be a contrast to her world, where she lives in all these like manicured mansions with um, very very stuffy cocktail parties. But the funny thing is that his world, even though it is natural and outside, is just as fake looking. Like it's very just constructed. Like there's a scene where he's feeding a deer by hand, and it <laughs> looks like a postcard. Like it just nothing real about it. But yeah, just the. Uh, the thought that went into constructing these images like really blew my mind. Uh, there's a scene where her shithead children are rejecting this younger, less wealthy man that she's interested in romantically, and uh, her daughter storms off to her room, throws herself under the bed, all distraught that her mom's like disgracing the family, 
and the light coming through her window is basically like kaleidoscopic. Yeah, she has this kind of. It doesn't look like a stained glass, but it's. I guess it has the stained glass effect to where there's this little porthole window in her room, and it's just casting off these weird, brightly colored rainbow lights. Yeah, it's like a day glow prism almost. Yeah. Like instead of uh, like a rainbow purple, it's like this really like sick like pinkish hue. Yeah, it's prismatic. Yeah. Definitely. And I th- I think what I really like about this movie. It's a really simple story about a woman falling in love against the odds because of class issues and trying to decide like whether she's going to do what she wants or what everyone else wants her to do, which is pretty much like you said, just kind of wait for death. It's a very simple story, but it goes by so quickly. Yeah, the editing and pacing was just really great for this. The, the whirlwind part of the romance really did feel like a whirlwind. Yeah, we kind of all feel like Rock Hudson's like sweeping us off our feet. Like the movie's got he these did. like, yeah, he's got these like sweeping uh, orchestral motifs to it, where everything uh, just kind of makes you feel almost drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like a lull where obviously they have their problems. Like when sort of the puppy love wears off, they have kind of negotiate what their life together is going to be like. The movie does slow down to accommodate that lull in the romance. But by that time, you're in the final half-hour stretch. So most of the movie's gone by, and that's when you sort of sink into the, like, melodrama of, like, what choice is she going to make? Is she going to choose her own pleasure, or is she going to, like, choose what her children want? And it should be noted that one of her children has already graduated college and is finishing up law school and is about to, you know, go off and, and live their life. And then the other child is in college and is getting ready to get married and also move permanently out of the house. So there are, they are adults. They're not her children. They are grown ass adults. <laughs> yeah. And they're like trying to dictate her life based on these like selfish, um, well, where are we going to go for Christmas? Like, I don't know. Somewhere else. <laughs> I don't know. And, uh, what they, what the children do to keep her occupied is they buy her a television, which she is, uh, sort of deemed as like the saddest thing that a widow could own. Because you just basically sit and look at pictures and your life is over at that point. Um, And there's like a really great moment right before the movie ends where it looks like she's about to sit down and watch the TV. Like she's just going to like leave this romance in her past. Because the camera just sort of follows the TV as she walks around alone in her own apartment sort of fretting over what she's going to do. And it's really got like a sad few stabs at your heart uh, towards the end of the film. No, it would have been a, the perfect, like, tragedy. Probably would have been, like, one of my favorite movies of all time had she just sat down in front of the TV and turned it on. Yeah. If, if, if she had sat down to, like, watch the TV and the movie just, like, ended on that note, that would have been just o- almost too modern to even, like, have been pulled off at the time. Yeah, I, I don't think they would have gotten away with that. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And this movie, I was kind of surprised that she was the good guy in this, that her kids were the selfish ones, because it's pretty much saying, like, fuck what your kids say, fuck what your country club says, do whatever you want to do. And that I feel like is a somewhat shocking and and progressive tone for a 1950s melodrama for women. Like, you know what? If your husband's a piece of shit, leave him. Go get a (laughs) new one. Or if your husband's dead, who cares who you fuck? Your kids are adults. They can handle it. You got your own money. Yeah. Like, what? How is she the good guy? I figured she'd be selfish for doing these things. Yeah, in a time known for, like, uh, the value of conformity and, like, crew cuts and picket fences, um, for them to sort of demonize, 
like wealthy regular society and then sort of glorify these like drunken lobster boils where like like you said Walden types uh just sort of get drunk and revel in nature and each other's company and don't give a shit about doing things by the the, rules they're the intellectuals the bohemians they sit around and talk about books and drink wine with raffia on the bottle and (laughs) don't care what the vintage of the wine is and they certainly don't belong to a country club but they do actually go out in the country on a pretty regular basis but yeah, that is kind of a surprising sentiment for that time. Yeah, it was very pro-Bohemia. Like, give away your earthly possessions, sell them off, you don't need them. Go live out in nature in, like, a rustic cabin. You'll be happier. So, one of the weirder things about binging all these Douglas Sirk movies for me was that I had never seen a Rock Hudson film before. Mm-hmm. And then I've, now I've seen, like, four or five of them. Because um, they've worked together a lot. What did, what did you think of, like, Rock Hudson's screen presence in these movies? Oh, he's just a doll. <laughs> I kind of wish, like, John Hamm would fill this uh, niche now. He just wants to be funny, though. Yeah, Rock Hudson's not trying to be funny in these. No, um, he's just charming and handsome. He looks like a chiseled statue of, like, a handsome man. He's Rock Hudson. <laughs> I was calling him Rock Hard Hudson for a while, because he's, like, so virile. <laughs> and uh, I, I think, like, before we move on from uh, All That Heaven Allows, there, there's one part in the movie where... They're driving together, and he's trying to lure her away from caring about what wealthy people think. Mm-hmm. And she says, oh, you want me to think more like a man or be more like a man? And he says, only in that way. Which is a... Uh, per- <laughs> Whoa! Hey, Rackinson. <laughs> but he says those kind of lines in this, like, smiling, almost winking way where, like, I, I don't know how well-known that was at the time or how big of a shock it was, but... Oh, it was a very open secret within Hollywood, but... Uh... His agent had previously been blackmailed by someone saying, like, oh, I'll reveal the Rock Hudson's gay. And in order to placate the uh, journalist or blackmailer, they gave that person, like, someone else that he was representing and be like, well, that guy's definitely gay and he's a drunk. Uh, in order to protect Rock Hudson, I mean, I don't, I don't think he ever, like, had a beard. I don't think he ever personally, like, you know, tried to hide that he was gay. It's, it seems like he's having fun with that line. Like I, I know we were just saying he, do, he doesn't play any of these roles as especially silly or anything like that, but he is like smiling through that line in like this kind of like knowing way. But I, I just thought that was kind of a funny touch to the film. Speaking of his performances, um, the next movie, Written on the Wind from 1956, he plays a very similar character to his um, character in All That Heaven Allows. He's like this like natural, unwealthy character who's rubbing elbows with these wealthy types and he's supposed to ground them but in this case he is raised from a boy to be the playmate of a rich oil baron's son it's kind of like uh the toy starring richard Pryor, except you know instead of a grown man it was a young boy and his family bought him essentially weird situation so he's raised with both i don't know the male actor's name but the he's raised with a, a brother and a sister the sister is played by dorothy malone who is in the Tarnished Angels movie I was talking about earlier. I'm another Douglas Sirk repeater. And Dorothy Malone plays this sort of like nymphomaniac character who really wants to bang Rocket Hudson, and he's not interested because she's basically like a sister to him. And he keeps deflecting, so she sleeps with other people, I guess, to try to make him jealous. Yeah. And her brother basically does the billionaire playboy thing that Rock Hudson was doing in Magnificent Obsession, Except in this case, Rock Hudson is the grounded, natural man who comes in and cleans up all his problems. Like, the billionaire playboy just fucks up and this guy fixes his, like, frivolity. Essentially, yeah. But then, you know, that only makes it worse because then the rich playboy thinks that 
that nobody sees him as a man because Rock Hudson's always standing next to him and, you know, he'll never be, like, as much of a man as Rock Hudson in his father's eyes and everyone everyone just loves Rock Hudson and nobody cares about him, blah, 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 which just makes that whole cycle, like, much, much worse. Yeah, and even though he is basically, like, emotionally stunted like a boy, he has this, like, really dark edge to him mm-hmm. where he drinks until he's just blind drunk and he sleeps with a pistol under his pillow. Uh, even after he seduces Lauren Bacall and basically marries her in a rush, he gets up drinking for a while, but he still sleeps with his pistol for, like, a mysterious purpose. We don't know if he's trying to protect himself from other people or if he's just, like, always wants to have a mode of suicide available. But the, the eventual conflict comes up because Rock Hudson is secretly in love with this guy who's basically his adoptive brother. He's in love with this guy's new wife, played by Lauren Bacall, another older woman, I believe. Yeah, none of, none of Douglas Sirk's leading ladies are particularly young. They're all in their mid-30s, usually. And uh, that all comes to a head uh, at the mansion on a particularly drunken night. Um, someone gets shot, which is alluded to in the first scene, and we kind of like unravel the pieces of like what happened that night uh, by dialing the calendar back. Which was a great effect. I love that effect in movies, like where you you have a scene, and then they do the whole one year earlier. And in this case, there was a desk calendar, and the wind from the open door in the first scene blows the calendar back a year. And I just I loved it. It was so great. Yeah, which is something from Looney Tunes. If you want to talk about like a cinematic depiction of nature that's just like not at all real, uh, the wind in this early scene it blows open the door and it looks like a concentrated fan that's just blowing straight into the doorway. And there's all these just leaves coming in from out of nowhere. It yeah. flips the pages of the calendar. It's absolutely absurd. Very weird, especially considering how manicured the, like the house is and the lawn is. Like it is a literal mansion, so why would the door be flimsy enough to just blow right open? Like why why are there that many leaves in the yard that they just blow right into the house? Makes no sense. So I don't know how real Rock Hudson's character is in this movie, but apparently this was based off of like a tabloid kind of story about like a real oil family. Yeah, so it wasn't an oil family, it's a tobacco family. So Libby Holman, who was born Elizabeth Lloyd Holzman, was a torch singer and actress. She was openly bisexual. She had female companions throughout her life, and at one point when she was an older woman, uh, a young tobacco heir fell in love with her. And at his best friend's 21st birthday party, there was an argument, and he got shot, and later died, and everyone thought that she contributed to it. They thought that she was sleeping with one of his friends, maybe his best friend, the one whose birthday they were at, and that she like goaded him into shooting her husband. And then later it was revealed that the husband's family was really anti-Semitic and she was Jewish and so they like trumped up a bunch of charges to, you know, put her in jail and to like, you know, shame her for marrying their son who, who is now dead. But she kind of got back at them in this really fucked up way. When she showed up at the trial, she wore such heavy veiling and long gloves that the newspaper reporters assumed that she must be a mixed race woman and that's what the scandal was over. And so they threatened to print that, and the family dropped all the charges because they didn't want anyone to think that their son would have married a mixed-race woman, which terribly <laughs> fucked up, but she made out fairly well financially from that. Uh, her That husband actually had a kid. She was pregnant at the time. 
and that son later died in a tragic like mountain climbing accident and she adopted two more kids uh, she was a huge civil rights defender like she wouldn't stay in hotels where her like black uh, co-performers couldn't stay she would trick hotels into like letting her black co-performers like stay in the hotels she would she'd practice and like be like yeah they can come in the back door you know okay I'm okay with that and then like right before the show opened she's like hey so you've already advertised for the show we've been rehearsing it for four weeks if you don't let them come in the front door and sit at the table with me when we eat dinner I'm not going to do the show, and you're going to lose a bunch of money. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and then she had, she had kind of a tragic end. She ended up uh, committing suicide because uh, she saw like the rise of like McCarthyism, and you know uh, Martin Luther King had been shot, and she just didn't like the way the country was going. And so yeah, she committed suicide in 1975 because she like wasn't very happy politically in the country she was in, and also her partner at that point had died. So that's Lauren Bacall's character in the movie. Yes. She obviously had an interesting life that would have made a great movie as like a biopic, but this character is not Ooh, like that at all. So milk toast. She's just a simple, level-headed woman. She's like an advertising executive that just uh, sort of gets wooed out of her job. This is this is the fifties. She was she was a secretary. <laughs> she was an advertising executive's secretary. Okay, my bad. And she's uh, wooed out of the office like mid-sentence, pretty much, just because this guy wants to play with her for a while. Yeah. And the movie is like written around the rumors more more so than like the actual story yeah because obviously there's there's no torch singer there's no scandal involving like you know race or anything like that weird weird adaption adaptation of of this story because the story was quite interesting yeah i like it as is it took me a minute to get used to the film because i had this idea of what a Douglas Sirk movie was supposed to look like because we started with All That Heaven Allows mm-hmm. and I had these like really intense, like I said, Jalo type colors um, and these just really like the unreal really intense cross-lighting, yeah. Yeah, just like four or five different lights hitting angles in different ways and like just, I don't know, just really absurd stuff and this was more tame in the lighting department even though the the sets and the costumes are so beautiful. There's like a lot of lavish like wealth in this film mm-hmm. uh, where you just like go through these gorgeous hotel rooms and see these like, beautiful flower arrangements and pretty dresses. So there's a lot to look at in the Technicolor print. And we did watch like the nice Criterion version of this, but it just wasn't quite what I was used to with All That Heaven Allows. And it was kind of hard not to be a little disappointed that it wasn't such like a perfect work in we the same way. We got spoiled. Yeah. <laughs> like I almost wish I had saved that one for last. Yeah. But it's still, like, a really great movie. It's very tawdry in the melodrama, obviously, because there's, like, drunks and wanton women and... And wealth. <laughs> they, just, they just drive around in their cars. It's pretty much like Gossip Girl, but with a much older cast. Like, oh, totally. Nobody knows what to do with themselves because they're so rich, and they just they don't know how to, like, function because they're just too rich. It's like, oh, boo-hoo. Also, like, uh, Dallas, the soap opera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's that kind of stuff. Um, and I it was, is also set in Dallas. And I really like how... Rock Hudson like dresses like a boy through parts of the movie. Like he wears like these like kind of baseball caps and like. Uh... I didn't think he looked boyish. He was wearing a suit the whole time. <laughs> it's it's towards the end. He goes to visit his dad back out in the country, and they like kind of consider like, oh, did I do you wrong by setting you up with all these like crazy wealthy people? Is this like gonna be an issue in your life? Like I could have been a better father by steering you away. And when he goes home to go on that visit, uh, he he wears like these like kind of boy clothes. 
which I thought was kind of interesting because he because he's such like a masculine figure that wear just seeing him wear a baseball cap and a vest like looks strange to me. To be fair, 1950s baseball caps look dumb as shit. <laughs> they're like the bills are funny on them. They're too long and too narrow, and the cap part doesn't cover his whole head. It looks looks like a little tiny leather yarmulke almost with a bill on it. So it like just barely fits on him. It looks like it's going to topple off at any moment. Uh, it was it was a very weird baseball cap, but I, I never thought he dressed like a child. <laughs> uh, I, might, I might just be being a little silly. It was just a striking image seeing him like not be like a, a tough man. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta wear a baseball cap, Brandon, even if you are a tough man. Who likes the sun in their eyes? <laughs> Good point. So the next movie after that was Interlude in 1957. Um, this movie really isn't really worth mentioning almost, uh, but it is one of the five like Technicolor like romance films from the era. Uh, June Allison is stationed in Germany as an American student, and she falls in love with a European against <gasps> everybody's warnings of how they're different from American men in this like kind of quiet way. They like try to warn her away from the way Europeans are more like liber- liberal in their sexuality. Uh, so she falls in love with this guy despite the warnings. Uh, it turns out that he's married, <laughs> and his wife is crazy. <laughs> So he can't get a divorce from her, but he's kind of alone in the world because she's kind of checked out. Uh, Isn't this just the, like the plot to Jane Eyre? Yeah, pretty much, honestly. Uh, but it's also like Roman Holiday too. Cause she goes on these like beautiful adventures um, through these like European landscapes. They they hop over to Rome even for a while. It's it's just not even really worth mentioning. I, I we saw the three really big ones: All That Heaven Allows, and Written on the Wind, and the next one we're about to talk about: Imitation of Life. We saw all those in the Criterion uh, restorations where the color really popped. Mm-hmm. I watched Interlude on just like a really cheap streaming service. It was a really nasty looking, almost pallid. Like it was just like, there's nothing really to like grasp onto. And then the story itself wasn't very interesting either. Um, but it, it is one of the few films from that era that does fit that romance angle. But it's totally skippable. And even the, even the title Interlude will tell you that it's, it's just nothing. It's like, uh... <laughs> It's like almost like an intermission between these better films. But uh, Imitation of Life, 1959. Uh, we saw a clip from the 30s version in I Am Not Your Negro uh, shortly before we watched this movie that had me a little worried about what race relations were going to look like in this Douglas Sirk melodrama. Um, this is about racial passing. If a mixed race character grows up in a wealthy woman's household sort of as a servant, like her mother goes on as like a housemaid, and this little girl grows up knowing what it feels like to pass as white and wealthy and sort of rebukes her mother for being um, black and like doesn't want to be publicly associated with her mother because it revokes her status as a white woman. Uh, and that escalates as the years go on. She becomes a young woman. She goes to college. and No, she doesn't go to college. <laughs> no, her mother, her mother had the money saved up to send her to the black teacher's college and she said I am not going to the black teacher's college. Yeah. I would rather work in a nightclub as a stripper. Yeah, she, she goes to burlesque college. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Sandra D is uh, the white girl that she grows up with as like a best friend slash sister character but the resentment sort of grows between them because Sandra D's character actually does go to college um, and her mother, uh, played by Lana Turner, becomes a famous actress in the meantime. Uh, so the, the two of them are just sort of like stuck in this house with this housekeeper. 
um, the character and the tension of being bottled up together and the different lives they leave because of their privilege amounts to these like kind of big blow ups towards the end of towards the end of the film. One time to the point where the mixed race girl is tired of expected to identify as black, so she overperforms the race as. She does this, like, very coded, uh, almost saying, like, Massa to uh, Lana Turner. Uh, I think she actually does say that. Yeah. So. She, like, performs her race uh, to embarrass Lana Turner in front of her wealthy, like, film film snob friends uh, in, like, a really, like, tough scene. There's another tough scene where a white boy she's dating finds out that her mother is black and just beats her in the street. So the movie does go to these, like, really harsh places. But sort of in Douglas Sirk fashion, there's kind of like a romance to those scenes. Like when she's getting beaten in the street, there's this kind of like jazzy, like almost musical theater, uh, almost West Side Story kind of score to it. It's really strange uh, stuff to watch someone who deals in such like fake environments tackle these like sort of real biting issues. How did you feel that clash worked? Uh, well, we did figure out later that he was playing those jazzy interludes anytime they were, like, in the city. Yeah. To, like, show that the city sounds that way, which it obviously doesn't, but it was, you know... I don't know, it was, like, really, like, cheesy, like, 1950s jazz, like, interludes. Um, it was, like, not quite bebop, but, mm. like, brassier. I don't know. It was funny. Yeah, it was just kind of weird. Like, uh, usually when everything, anything dramatic happens in these films, like if like a character dies or somebody gets beaten up or there's like a fist fight, there's usually these like really soaring strings that like uh, sort of play up the emotion of the, the scenario. But in this case, you have like a young girl beaten in the gutter and the soundtrack. It didn't sound quite like that. It's it's pretty. Almost feel like more reverence was given to her being discovered as a burlesque dancer than like her being beaten. Well, that's because they were playing the actual burlesque music. <laughs> Soundtrack didn't change for that. She was in a club where music was already playing. I don't know. I, I didn't really fixate on that. I was more interested in the dynamic where the story is about, despite what Brandon is, has been talking about this entire movie, uh, the story is about Lana Turner, who is a poor woman, can't pay her bills, she's a widow, and her and her daughter are struggling to get by, and she's decided to move to the big city to become an actress, kind of late in life, in her, her late 30s. And, you know, she meets this woman on the beach who's really nice to her kid and lets that woman come home with her because she knows that woman's homeless, her and her daughter. And, like, the two of them just become best friends. And even though the film is ostensibly about, you know, Lana Turner's rise to fame and how her life is kind of this imitation of life because she always is like, well, I'll do one more film, I'll do one more play, then I'll spend time with my daughter, then I'll enjoy the wealth I've accumulated. And she never quite gets around to it. But I do like how Douglas Sirk really tried as much as he could to undercut that story, to talk more about race relations and like, Who's the more tragic figure, the black woman who is proud of her race and proud to be who she is, but also like accepts that there's a certain amount of servitude that she'll never be able to escape, or her daughter who passes for white and has all of the privilege and wealth that could come with that, but she's ashamed of who she is. And he kind of, he, he lets us decide like who we might think is more tragic or, you know, whether or not they should be considered tragic figures at all. Well, basically, basically you have like four women that mm -hmm. are like the heart of the story, right? Yeah. Uh, it's really weird to see like the young, the girls when they grow up, um, one of them, like we said, like suffers physical violence for trying to pass in a white society. And then the other girl is like struggling because she has a crush on somebody who's like the wrong person. 
Oh man, <laughs> totally the same struggles, right? Yeah, no. and, and Sandra D, uh, most famous for playing Gidget, so she's got this like bright and oh. bubbly, like energetic. I loved the person they had playing her as a child because she was that like precocious, bubbly, like perky blonde kid. But then, like by the time she's like sixteen, is like I'm really in love with a man in his forties. It's just like <laughs> shut up, Gidget, just shut up. She's like, yeah, he totally gets me. We we talk about my hair and horseback riding and all the things I like. So that means we're totally compatible. It's like, no, shut up, you <laughs> idiot. It's funny, like after seeing him portray all these like old kind of world, not old, it's not the right word, uh, like middle aged, world weary women who've like seen some shit, like a lot of widows and people who've like had a, a, a few drinks in their past. To see him play this like bright, bubbly, innocent character for the screen in Sandra D is like a really weird interjection into like the Douglas Sirk world after all these other films. Yeah, there's not a lot of bright, happy characters. Everybody has some kind of tragedy. Yeah. And you just can't take Sandra D's tragedy seriously because she just is like, I got a new horse. <laughs> I want to date a 40 year old. She's like, come on. Yeah, she's most interesting as a contrast to uh, the girl she grows up with. Um, I, I think what's really struck me early in the film uh, you were talking about how Lana Turner picks up the uh, mother and daughter off the beach and sort of brings them home just for just for the night and then develops into them uh, living more or less in a domestic partnership they're yeah. raising their two kids together they're pooling their money in order to like make extra cash Lana Turner's character handwrites letters for a company to make it seem more personal and so the other character the other mother takes over doing that for her so that she can concentrate more on her acting and they just pull the money they make from that into like a central kitty that they use to pay their bills. Yeah, I thought that was like really interesting that just the idea like it's it functions a lot like a marriage mm -hmm. and you have these two characters, one's a casting agent and one's just like a guy she happens to meet as a photographer trying to lure her into a marriage to provide her this like homestead and like a normal sort of life but they all want to dictate her freedom uh, whereas she already has the steady home and, the, like you said, the domestic partnership with this other character who's ostensibly her maid, but really is just like a friend who and a roommate. Yeah, um, like, she she ends up giving this character, uh, Annie, I remember the name, uh, mm. played by Juanita Moore. Uh, yeah. She ends up, you know, lavishing as much wealth on her as she can. She's like, look, like, I couldn't have done this had you not stayed home with the kids, had you not written those letters, had you not taken in other people's laundry to do while the kids were at school, like. So she tries to take care of her, but then at the same time, Annie, you know, portraying that stereotype of the servitile black woman is like, oh, no, it's no problem. I don't want to have more servants in the house. I'd rather just do it myself. They'll get in the way. Oh, it's no problem at all. I'm happy to help. But like, at the end of the movie, she's so tired from working her whole life. Yeah, she's exhausted. And I, I think, like you're saying, it is a bit of a stereotype, but at the same time, I think that's just the skill set she was raised with, too. Like, that's how she saved herself from being homeless, is that she was, like, raised to be in that servitile position, and she just found, like, pr pretty much the ideal scenario uh, of this woman who, like, needed her, but couldn't quite pay her, and yeah. they, like, were each other's crutch until, like, they were actually in, like, kind of a, a good position. And you want to talk about how Cirque worked in all these, like, race identity issues into the film in a sort of subversive manner? I think the idea of these, like, four women, like, living in this house together and not really needing dudes. Like, dudes are around, but they're kind of superfluous. Yeah. I think that's really subversive in, like, uh, a really quiet kind of way. Yeah, and, like, the, the at first, when they are poor, Annie and her daughter 
uh, Sarah Jane, they do live in like the back bedroom that's not as nice, but then once they all live in the same mansion together, Sarah Jane and uh, Sandra Deacon's character Susie's bedrooms are identical. Like mm-hmm. they both have these nice 1950s girls' bedrooms with records and dresses and like all of this stuff. They they live pretty much the same life. And it's it's weird. Like uh, they and it's not a problem for them. None of the characters really notice that that would be weird. That that they're being raised essentially the same. It, it's weird that the movie almost demonizes. Um, would you say her name's Sally? Uh, Sarah Jane is the the yeah. mystery daughter. So they almost hint that they might be demonizing Sarah Jane for like rejecting her race but she's like got legit reasons to not want to do that like the life they want her to leave because of her identity is just like not as good as what we see Sandra D like enjoying in her privilege yeah. Even though they're they're raised fairly similarly, Sarah Jane did not get a horse for her graduation, and she's mm-hmm. not going to go to a very expensive private four-year college because there's not a lot that would have accepted her, and she did not want to go to a black college. Her dating pool is limited. Like, her freedom of what where she can go is limited. Um, and the tragedy of the situation is not necessarily that she won't accept her place in the world. It's just that it puts a strain on what, what should have been a... she can have. Well, it puts a strain on what should have been a much better relationship with her mother. And that's, like, where the movie hits its, like, climactic drama, I think. I feel like, uh, to, to Cirque's detriment, though, like, he did play up Sarah Jane's brattiness and her selfishness when yeah. that was just a reaction to a very shitty world. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you can't pass as white, you should pass as white is pretty much like what the movie was saying. But, you know, they were, they were saying, oh, but if you do that, you are a selfish, awful person. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, I, don't, I don't know if it, it necessarily does everything perfectly, but I kind of winced at the idea of watching this in the first place. And I, I it, it was kind of like written, in the, written on the wind. It, I kind of learned to watch it as I was going through it. It never was quite as, like, icky as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, no, I just thought that, the, you know, this probably at the time shocking idea that four women of different races could just live together and like nothing bad happened due to that like though that was very subversive yeah for a time when we thought oh man we can't share water fountains because lord knows something will happen i don't know what but (laughs) yeah and if you want to talk about a woman's picture this is like the one film in all the ones we watched where men aren't really a, a big deal like this is about four women so the ultimate message at the end is this character realizes she's been living an imitation of life <laughs> and she finally decides to marry that man who loved her all those years ago yeah i guess that is part of it she finally realized that living independently and being fabulously wealthy means nothing without a husband to be more fabulously wealthy than you and well and also her her a large part of that is just like spending more time with her daughter yeah, yeah. yeah she, she failed to be as good a mother as she should have and Sarah, her relationship with Sarah Jane um, kind of fell to the wayside as well. They, they were much better friends when she was around and struggling than when she was rich and just off all the time. Yeah. Because her not being around... Wait, Sarah Jane, the other woman's daughter? Yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, Sarah Jane had more room to resent her as like an idea because she wasn't really around like conversing with her as, yeah as so she she could like pretend that this woman is like their oppressor yeah but then like she hangs out with her and you know she's yeah. like no you i see you as my daughter too this is but i also respected your mother's wishes and how she wanted to raise you so yeah well i, I think that one and written on the wind are both very good mm-hmm. uh those two and 
all that heaven allows are on Criterion in beautiful Technicolor. Uh, we rented them very easily from the library, and I would recommend... We borrowed. I resent it when people say rented from the <laughs> library. You do not pay money. Well, you technically do in your taxes, but that's not a rental fee. It's a borrowing fee. The library very kindly loaned us all three films. I think they're all worth watching, but if you're just going to watch one, all that heaven allows is the masterpiece, right? Yeah, because, I mean, as progressive as, as Imitation of Life attempted to be... It still is very clumsy by today's terms. Oh, totally. Like it's not it's not progressive by today's terms by any means. It is somewhat progressive for a German male filmmaker from nineteen fifty four to have made. Sure. But I mean, I'll just say it wasn't as uh gross as I thought it was gonna be. Yeah, that's not necessarily <laughs> like A A plus. Yeah. And written on the wind as well, the way they treat Dorothy Malone's um, sexual proclivities is kind of gross. Oh my god, she likes to get drunk and just sleep with people who are poor. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of just... They're poor! Which is funny, because in Tarnished Angels, um, where she's playing against Rock Hudson, she is sort of the tragic heart at the center of the film, and she does drink and have sex outside of marriage, but it's not treated as big of a deal. It's more about how the men in her life who are actually around don't treat her with respect. So it's kind of interesting to see her play two characters with the same problem, but the movie kind of... Um... Yeah, but a rich person should know better because they're better than the rest of us. <laughs> you're right, you're right. She was poor in the other film, I guess. That kind of yeah, nobody cares if poor people are promiscuous. <laughs> well, um, I think that about wraps it up. We, we really did like All That Heaven Allows. Uh, this will be our last episode before Mardi Gras, so... Yeah, I don't got time for this. <laughs> Y'all have a great carnival season. Um, if I wanted to plug something on the way out, I just want to say that there are a few podcasts that we have friends on the internet who do. Um, I mentioned earlier The Fly at the beginning of this as being Douglas Sirk related. Um, I was on an episode of the We Love to Watch podcast where we discussed the Vincent Price The Fly, and that was a really fun conversation. Also, since then, I was on the Jean-Pod Van Damme podcast <laughs> where uh, I talked about the Dennis Rodman-Jean-Claude Van Damme team-up double team, which was directed by Sui Hark, who's like this like famous Chinese action director. Um, who uh, directed the sequel to Journey of the West, which is currently out in theaters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that that Dennis Rodman movie is truly ridiculous. Um, recently, I contributed to a Best of the Year roundup for Bangers and Mash, which is a YouTube-only podcast. I'm going to have to talk a little bit about Emily, Nine Lives, and The Neon Demon. And um, even more recently, I started listening to this podcast called That's Your Opinion. Um, they're really cool guys. I just listened to their I'm Not Your Negro episode the other day. And if you want to hear more about that movie at length, they did a really good job of it. Um, and they they gave us a nice little shout out on their last episode, too. And that was really Thanks, sweet. guys. Yeah. So uh, everyone have a great carnival stay safe and drink plenty of water yeah <laughs> eat, eat as much king cake as you can before uh before midnight on fat tuesday or you will turn to salt <laughs> and try to be as colorful as a douglas cirk film in your costuming please you know, really just play it up Please. and uh we'll see y'all during lent yeah happy mardi gras bye, bye.